time for short play. Alex, we are living under global pandemic. There are riots and violence in the streets. We were hit with an earthquake here in California last week. What in the world's going on? I don't know, Nick. But if a locust plague hits, I win Revelation Bingo. <laughs> you know we have to laugh about it, otherwise I guess we're correct. I don't know. But this was it, this is was it, wasn't there already a, a locust plague in Africa in January? I. Uh, the stuff just keeps coming fast and furious. I, I don't know. But I do know that this is Swordplay, and we are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3, we are wrapping up the book of Zephaniah. Lots of good stuff in store today. We have quite a bit to get through, so I think we should just jump right into it. Let's Nick, do it. yeah, we have uh, an important um, question about the, uh, well, really just about the source of ref- uh, reference to Zephaniah. Given the, uh, given the seemingly different tone of the last chapter of the book, um, especially starting in verse 8, how do we know that... Zephaniah is a unified book, that Zephaniah wrote the whole thing. Yeah, so um, modern critical scholars tend to, and I hope this isn't too strong of a phrase, but they tend to tear books apart. And so, for example, you end up with Isaiah being like a a three-part book. And so you have uh, chapters 1 through 39 being a book you have Deutero-Isaiah, which is like 40 to 55, chapters 40 to 55. And then finally you have Third isaiah which is 56 to the end of the book. And even then you could like break that down even further because I think some people talk about like Proto-Isaiah, which is 1 through 12, chapters 1 through 12. Um, and Zephaniah is no different because of the change in tone that we find here at uh, being at 3 verse 8. Um, modern critical scholars, liberal scholars see a different author as penning the conclusion of Zephaniah. My take on that, this is so much high-minded, unsubstantiated speculation, and it actually fails to recognize that all throughout the book, Zephaniah has been signaling this restoration motif that the book ends with. And so like 2 verse 3, verse 7, verse 9, these are verses which hint at restoration of a remnant. And then beginning at 3 verse 8, Zephaniah expands upon this theme in detail. And so therefore, Zephaniah is a united, a unified document. Uh, What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, The remnant motif, it does start in chapter 2, it goes through chapter 3. I think it is possible that Zephaniah wrote or prophesied the content of all three chapters. Uh, That's my take. But he may have done that over a long span of time. For Mm. instance, we noted in previous episodes that Zephaniah likely wrote uh, the first and second chapters in the 630s BC, since Ethiopia is still seen as a southern power. But that still puts the first deportation of uh, the uh, Judah uh, Heights to Babylon in 606 BC, and that's about 30 years away. And the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC, that's close to 50 years away from the writing. So I suggest that perhaps chapter 3 was what Zephaniah proclaimed 
once the Babylonians were on Judah's doorstep, reaffirming that Zephaniah was telling the truth. He's a true prophet of Yahweh. His warnings were real. And so compiling um, the summary of Zephaniah's message would have reminded the audience of two things. First, uh, you had a chance to repent and you missed it. Uh, Second, Yahweh was serious about saving a remnant. He was serious before Babylon came. He's still serious when they're at the doorstep and sending people off to captivity. So don't give up hope. The remnant promise still holds true. Any thoughts there, Nick? No, that's a good that's a good uh, point there that you made. Well, uh, let's jump into verse 1 then, since chapter 3 does have a lot uh, to say. So verse 1, how did Jerusalem, it doesn't say Jerusalem, but it says that there's an oppressive and tyrannical city, and it sounds like it's Jerusalem. So how did Jerusalem become oppressive and tyrannical? Yeah, and I I see a threefold indictment here. They're rebellious, they're defiled, and they're oppressing. Mm. Um, And this is supposed to be a description of Jerusalem, uh, which, by the way, would have been a surprise, right? And it kind of has a flavor of what, Amos, um, where chapter 2 here in Zephaniah had been north, south, east, west. All these other countries and peoples are going to fall under God's judgment. And now God brings it back home. And he's like, not so fast. You guys too, even my people, um, you you guys are going down too. And so this, I, that would have been scandalous for the original audience. And, you know, they probably would have been on board with, yeah, God, get the Moabites, get the Philistines, get the Ethiopians, get the Assyrians, get them. Oh, wait, you're going to get us too? And so this, again, I think it would have been a, a scandalous thing for them. <coughs> Excuse me. Rebellion is rebellion against God, rebellion against his word. Defiled addresses the moral and ceremonial impurity that had fallen upon the people and oppression. That can be any number of sins, wronging a foreigner, um, neglect of widows, orphans, and the poor, violence against these weaker members of society, upper echelons of government, ignoring the lower classes of people. And so we actually run into the officials in verse 3, and the, and the judges as well. Um, so you, there's probably some of that going on here. Religious leaders engaging in fraud and injustice. The prophets are going to get the finger pointed at in verse 4. So, uh, and, and given uh, these connections in verses 3 and 4, probably those last two categories may be what is in view here. Um, but especially the religious leaders, um, and and how they're engaging in fraud and injustice, I think, really is accentuated in like lamentations after Jerusalem's been destroyed, and Jeremiah is lamenting. Two verse fourteen of Lamentations, he says, "Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions; they have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, and have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading." And then chapter four verses thirteen and fourteen. Uh, there Jeremiah laments, this was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her uh, the blood of the righteous and they wandered blind through the streets. They def- were so defiled with blood, no one was able to touch their garments. So you do have these religious leaders, and it's not just Zephaniah who points this out, but Jeremiah, after the fact, is coming on the scene going, yeah, it was the religious leaders um, and and while they they especially should have known better, they right. especially should have been doing right since they're the 
administrators of the law and the sacrificial system, but they they didn't, and they were involved in all this fraud, all this injustice, and so uh, all that was left was uh, the judgment of God. So that's what I see here. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think um, Judah being the target for judgment, uh, that was early on, chapter 1, verse 4, and so that was that was made known, and they kind of left that, went to all the nations, and then came back to Judah again. And so we circle back in chapter 3, verse 1, and we mentioned in chapter 1 the rampant child sacrifice, and Jeremiah covers that as well, in addition to the grievances you cited from Jeremiah. Uh, those are true as well. Bottom line, any group of people that devalues human life will inevitably self-destruct and collapse under the weight of its own sin and blood guilt. Then, once prostrated by natural consequences, you can either repent or dig in your stubborn heels, and Judah chose the latter. So, it's uh, serious, serious business going on here, Nick. Verse 2, why would Judah not listen, then, or accept correction from Yahweh? Why would Judah dig in their heels? So uh, the heart of verse two, she does not trust in Yahweh. I think I see that as kind of the linchpin as to why Jerusalem, the oppressing city, refuses divine correction. I mean, if if you don't trust Yahweh, why would you listen to him? Why would you accept correction from him? And so I think, uh, again, for me, that that is kind of the linchpin here is they don't trust in Yahweh. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's true. It's interesting as well that uh, if Yahweh's warnings and instruction came in the form of prophets and plague, then what more could have been done? I mean, what would it take to get their attention, to get them to accept that maybe, just maybe, God is trying to get their attention? He appeals to their reason as the prophets deliver the word of Yahweh. He appeals to their physical bodies as each plague brings one deeper into discomfort. And as we see in verse 7, Yahweh thought, ah, surely, surely they'll revere me and accept instruction, but apparently not. And it reminds me of what we covered in uh, chapter 1, verse 12, where you have the spiritually stagnant saying, no, 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 Yahweh won't do good or evil. Is the thought that our God has nothing to say, nothing to do with the current state of the world, is that something even we could experience today? Hmm. I wonder. Hmm. Hmm. Well, Nick, verses 3 and 4, you pointed out there are four groups that this uh, falls down upon, the responsibility, the princes, the judges, the prophets, and the priests, especially the prophets and priests. Why do you think those four are specifically condemned? Well, because uh, they're the ones specifically oppressing the people, and they're the ones that are profaning the law, that is, uh, sinning. And so what characterizes them? Violence, injustice, deception, that's that's what's at the heart of all of these. Uh, whether we're talking about uh, the government leaders or the religious leaders, uh, they are swallowed up in all this stuff. So um, that's what I see. What do you think? Yeah, and I... I- I like what you mentioned there, the government leaders and the religious leaders. You know, there are these two large bodies of overseers uh, that are generally described by these four people, right? Princes and judges represent the government. Prophets and priests represent religion. Government and religion, in whatever degree that they are enmeshed or not enmeshed, 
are seen throughout world history as being the primary forces of shaping a people group. Uh, those that occupy these responsibilities, uh, especially in Yahweh's nation, they are held responsible when the people of Yahweh are misshapen by the corrupt and sinful hands of those leaders. The people that still seek to do what is right, though, in Yahweh's eyes, uh, even though the leaders do otherwise, those people uh, are reminded in chapter 2, verse 3, that they can still be hidden on the day of Yahweh's anger. So must have been tough to go against the, uh, the cultural tide, just like it is today. Hmm. Verse 4, uh, Nick, speaking of prophets, can a genuine prophet actually be a terrible person, like someone who is responsible for leading the people astray? Does that happen by genuine prophets? Hmm. I, so what comes to my mind, what came to my mind immediately with, with this question was um, Jonah. Jonah was a... And I hope I'm not putting too sharp a point on this, but he was a, a racist, nationalist, bigot who experienced and suffered from xenophobia, and yet he accurately declared the will of God to the Ninevites. And so I, I think about him. I mean, he is a terrible person, and yet he's still used by God. Um, I told my kids the other night the story about Samson, and you rehearsed that story. Samson is not a uh, a bastion of morality. <laughs> yeah. um, he, he's a terrible person. And yet, God uses him, even though uh, Samson dies in the house of Dagon, and we'll talk about Dagon uh, later on in the episode. He His family comes, digs him out, and he's buried in the promised land. The next time you read about him, Hebrews chapter 11, he's in the Faith Hall of Fame. So, so yes, um, even terrible people, apparently God can use them, and, and even a terrible person like Jonah is a true prophet in the sense that he accurately declares the will and word of God. On the other hand, uh, coming back to Zephaniah 3, 4 here, this could be a description of false prophets. And that's a, a group of people which is abundant in number, and they abound in sacred history, Old Testament and New Testament. So, um, yes, I guess my answer is yes, but, right? I guess so, sure. Um, what do you think, Alex? Well, I think Jonah was a good example uh, that you listed there. I was also thinking of uh, Balaam, who was a prophet of Yahweh in the book of Numbers, uh, but not an Israelite. He really did hear from Yahweh, but he sought at every turn to carry out his own will for unrighteous gain. He wanted that money, and Balaam's loyalty was shown false, especially when he counseled Balak on how to get the Israelites to curse themselves, when it was very clear that that was not Yahweh's will. So, like Balaam, I think there were real prophets with real power, but false motives and false loyalty. There were prophets who, who did lie and deceive, so they were false prophets in that sense. And that's mentioned in Deuteronomy 18, 20 through 22. If a prophet says this is going to happen and it doesn't happen, then it's not a word from Yahweh. Uh, you can get rid of them. But there were also prophets who did, who did real signs, real power, real wonders, which drew people away from loyalty to Yahweh. And that's in Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3, where it says, 
those those profits that's a test that's a test to see are you still going to listen to Yahweh and not be drawn off into these other gods even though this person over here does have power and wonders by which to lure you away it's a test of the heart test of loyalty so yeah genuine prophets both those with real power and those who are just deceivers uh, they can be terrible terrible people who lead people astray verse 5 nick how does yahweh bring justice to light every single morning that's what it says yeah and, and literally it's uh in the morning in the morning so you have that emphasis there um, kind of like his mercies, which are new every morning. Lamentations three twenty three, right? Um, kind of like that. Yahweh's justice is seen every morning. That seems to be the the emphasis here. Despite appearances to the contrary, Yahweh is in the midst of his people, and since he is righteous and and just, um, that's what it says there at the beginning of verse five. Yahweh within her is righteous. His just judgments are not absent then. Uh, and so here's the thing, and this is seems uh, uh, very appropriate for the times that we're living in. Any conversation about justice, if it would have any success and make any difference, it must begin with God. Yahweh's essential nature is justice, is righteousness. How we treat others cannot be divorced from relationship with God. Absent Yahweh, justice devolves into arguments over personal preferences and debates devoid of true wisdom. And and so I hope people hear me on that well, and hear God on that, because that is what is needed. That's the thing that's needed right now uh, with all this civil unrest and cries for social justice, things like that. The conversation must begin with God. Uh, so that's what I think, Alex. What do you say? Yeah, I agree. And that would be, you know, the starting point for the Christian, right? So it's like you, of course, we don't expect the world to start there. But for the Christian, yeah, you have to start there. I don't think um, the justice in this verse is talking about earthly justice, though it's not completely divorced from earthly justice because God, he allows earthly governments to exist for the sake of carrying out justice romans 13 and that's however imperfect that may be uh rome was not perfect by any uh by any any measure but seeing as how the next verse in zephaniah 3 speaks of the nations being destroyed i think yahweh is bringing justice by the rise and fall of nations he daily like the rising of the sun takes note of the dealings of mankind that's his daily justice his record keeping. And when the course of man becomes irreversibly evil, then Yahweh at that point pours out his justice and his wrath upon those who are under judgment in the form of temporal destruction, which in turn acts as a shadow for all of mankind, uh, pointing towards the final judgment that is yet to come. And this cosmic show that plays out before our eyes over and over again, it serves to point us back to God while we still have time. It almost makes you want to say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Hmm. Well, Nick, uh, verse 5, what does it mean that the unjust, then, knows no shame? What is he referencing? Well, whereas the 
just character, the righteous character of Yahweh should have sparked remorse and repentance. Instead, it apparently drove the people into deeper depravity, and they continued in their sin. And rather than draw near to her God, like verse 2 says, by pursuing righteousness, the citizens of Jerusalem ran from Yahweh headlong into their sin, their consciences being seared as with a hot iron, and so they became shameless. And so um, that's what I'm seeing here with this, uh, the unjust knows no shame. Uh, What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think you're right. As people ran away from their God, Yahweh, they ran instead to other gods. And we saw the God Baal mentioned in chapter 1, verse 4, and scholars have noticed that the prophets sometimes substitute the name Baal for the word shameful because uh, the word shameful, Bosheth, Baal, it has a similar sound in Hebrew. So it's like a prophetic pun being made against their idolatry. And this can be seen in Jeremiah 324, uh, 1113, Hosea 9:10. And here we may have another veiled reference to Baal in Zephaniah chapter 3. So Israel runs to their shameful thing, to their Baals, and they know no shame for their idolatry and child sacrifice. So that's just some things in underlying in the text that may be there that I thought I'd point out for the audience. Any thoughts there? No, good connection. Verse 6 and 7, it starts mentioning the destruction of Uh, the nations, but now it's in past tense. And in chapter 2, it was in future tense. Why is the destruction of the nations now in chapter 3 worded in past tense, verses 6 and 7? So one nation uh, in particular, which may have been in view, which Yahweh had cut off, could be uh, Israel, the northern tribes whom Yahweh had removed out of his sight, as 2 Kings 17 and verse 18 uh, describes. And Judah was swiftly approaching the 100-year anniversary of the conquest and captivity of the northern kingdom by the time Zephaniah was written. Assyria had conquered uh, Israel in 722 B.C. So uh, assuming uh, the the, uh, early date for Zephaniah, as I do, uh, writing sometime in the 630s, that could be in view here, is the northern tribes went away. Canaan was mentioned earlier, back in 1 verse 11, 2 verse 5, and that, of course, was a nation that Israel had driven out for their wickedness when they had entered and conquered the land. Uh, Deuteronomy 9 verses 4 and 5 describe how uh, the Canaanites were to be driven out. So uh, those could be a couple of options. Uh, What do you think, Alex? So I think the nations in reference are the ones who were under judgment listed in chapter 2. And it seems that Yahweh had hoped that as the nations around Judah began to fall one by one to Babylon, and as judgment came closer and closer to Judah, that his people would change their disposition towards him. But we know that this was not the case. And you know, even if judgment for Judah was inevitable by the time you get to Zephaniah, because it seems like it, it it was. I think Yahweh still had hoped for more people to seek him for refuge on the day of wrath. He still wanted to save that remnant. But as the next text 
says, uh, the next verse in the text, it says they were eager instead to corrupt their deeds. Now, of course, my interpretation depends upon what we mentioned earlier, what I said about the letter being a collective summary of Zephaniah's message over a span of 30 to 50 years. So maybe not pinned by Zephaniah in one day, but collected over his career as a prophet before the uh, destruction came, during, and after. Any thoughts there, Nick? No, I like I like that actually. The more I think about it, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> that's a that's a pretty good pretty good way of looking at it. And that that uh, way of seeing the letter coming together that may apply to other letters as well. I have to go back and think about even the the episodes we've done on some other prophets. Um, verse eight, Nick. What does it mean now that? Yahweh will rise up, because this is the transition we were talking about. This is where things really start to change in the letter of Zephaniah. Right, and um, here's the thing is, so starting here, or even starting verse 9, I mean, I guess it depends on who you ask. You, You do have that transition, that change, and there are different ways of looking at this. I'm going to do my best to, uh, to work through this from what, like a historical perspective for the Jewish people, and see if I can maintain that. Sure. Um, uh, although that's probably not the primary interpretation uh, historically for the church. Uh, it's usually these verses are usually viewed in uh, uh, through the the lens of Messiah, right? And what Christ would do, and and even the church age. So, but. I'm going to operate under the assumption it meant something to the original audience, and and will do my best. Although I, I'll probably do it somewhat imperfectly. But um, one way that this rising is understood is as a witness to testify, uh, and in fact, that's how the New Revised Standard translates it. I arise as a witness, and it has parallels in the Old Testament, like in Micah one and verse two. Uh, this follows the Septuagint as well. Uh, my rising up for a testimony is how the uh, Septuagint translates that. Following the Hebrew, though, this is the Lord either as perhaps a mighty hunter, I will rise up to seize the prey, or as a mighty warrior, and this is the NIV marginal reading or footnote, I rise up to plunder. Uh, that's how this rising up could be understood. And perhaps the latter better fits the overall theme of Zephaniah, because earlier in the book, one way that Yahweh is depicted is as a divine warrior who rises up on his day in order to um, shed blood and kind of leave the the corpse in the street, as it were. And that was 1, verses 14 and following. Here, though, the difference is that Yahweh calls upon the remnant to wait for his coming to rescue them. When he plunders the other nations, the other kingdoms. And so the all-consuming wrath of Yahweh upon the nations and kingdoms means salvation for the remnant. And that salvation comes, of course, from the warrior God. Uh, I did mention kind of how this is also interpreted through the lens of Messiah. And uh, some, and maybe even many commentators, I'm especially mindful of John Gill, who's a commentator from way back when, Reading with certain early church writers like Jerome, Augustine, Eusebius, they see messianic significance here. And so the day of Yahweh rising up is the third day when Christ is raised, and 
his prey are the hosts of captives that he leads captive. Uh, so a uh, couple of ways of looking at it there. Alex, how do you see it? Yeah, I'm going to follow that early church trajectory. And so dovetailing on what you said there uh, about the resurrection of Christ, you know, when you look at the Septuagint for this verse, FNI 3.8, the word for rise up is anastasis, which is in every place but one in the New Testament translated as resurrection. Uh, that's not the way it's always translated in, in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, that's overwhelmingly how anastasis gets used is to mean resurrection. And then you combine that with the other word found here in Zephaniah 3.8, the word uh, martyr, which means testimony or, or witness. Uh, well, that phrase, testimony, witness, that's a favorite New Testament phrase for Christ's resurrection, uh, as we can see in 1 Corinthians 2.1, especially 1 Timothy 2.6 and 2 Timothy 1.8. And so his resurrection is a witness to the world. Zephaniah 3.8 uh, I agree with probably uh, those commentators you mentioned. It is highly messianic. Granted, uh, I hear what you're saying. You know, we have New Testament eyes to read this passage uh, in Zephaniah with, but in the original context, uh, it probably sounded more cryptic, right? It, it, it's right. like, well, how does what does this mean to us? How does this apply to us? But the idea of the passage is that Yahweh, uh, I think, is cryptically saying, yeah, he's going to be resurrected, which thus means he's going to first require a death, which means the death and resurrection of Christ was already pre-planned in the mind of God, uh, in the prophets, I, I say before the foundation of the world, well, Peter mm -hmm. says that, First Peter 1, but the uh, other point is that there will be a gathering of the nations for judgment, as we'll see in Zephaniah 3, uh, what is it, 3, well, the rest of 3.8. So when I read that, what came to my mind was Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 31, where Paul says, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So if we were to put ourselves in this timeline, I think right now in history, we're still in the time when this testimony, this witness, the resurrection of Christ has been offered to the world and the nations have a chance to repent. And so make disciples of all nations. Hmm. Where have I heard that before? Mm, that seems relevant familiar. to the discussion. Yeah. Hmm. Well, yeah, I think verse eight and following, I'm going to be following the messianic trajectory. Uh, even though I think it is fair to say, as you have presented there must be some relevance to the immediate audience as well. But that's how Messianic prophecies work. Uh, so let's keep going. Nick, verse 8, when did Yahweh gather the nations for judgment? We, uh, we came across a, a similar concept when we covered Joel 3, and I argued there for temporal or historical judgments for nations. And so I'm going to do a similar thing here where Yahweh promises judgment in time on the nations, the kingdoms which have been mentioned throughout the book, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ethiopians, the Assyrians. And historically, these nations were judged. They went out of business either swiftly or slowly over time. And um, 
information for that was rehearsed in the previous episode uh, when we covered chapter 2 about uh, the judgments on those nations and kind of how those came to fruition somewhat in uh, in history but uh, so you can you can listen to that episode oh diligent listener if you want more information about that uh, but uh, so that's what I see here Alex what do you think Wow, Joel 3, man, that was last August. Yeah. <laughs> what did I say about that again? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I, I think whatever I said, it was maybe similar to how I view, view the current verse. Basically, my position is that when this verse was written or spoken, the nations of Zephaniah 2 were already in ruins. And now as Judah anticipates or even begins to experience her own destruction— she is told to wait for Yahweh's salvation, which will come not now, but later. So I take the passage to be describing um, the end of the world sometime after Christ's resurrection, which will bring us all the way again to today. So I'm not saying there couldn't be both temporal and final judgment going on in a given passage, because I think there are. But in this particular verse, I think Zephaniah 3.8, I'm not seeing the temporal judgment I'm just seeing the final judgment uh, because this is the gathering of the nations after the rising of Yahweh as a witness. So uh, I take that to be after Christ's resurrection and the discipling of all nations. Uh, Nick, verse 9 then, as we continue down these two trajectories, uh, when did all the peoples call upon the name of Yahweh? Yeah, so... Well, I do my best to maintain that kind of historical interpretation. At some point, it does break down. And I think verse 9 is one of those places where you almost have to read it through um, the New Testament lens. Uh, something interesting about this verse is that it reaches back into the mists of human history while also reaching forward in time as well. So... Uh, at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that they may all call upon the name of the Lord. That pure speech here, literally the word there for speech is lip. That's a signpost which points the reader back to the confused lip of Babylon when Yahweh confused their language, their, their speech, their lip. Uh, uh, Babel, Genesis 11 is uh, where you read about that. So, Yahweh is promising to reverse the judgment of Babel. But then the united worship, serve him with one accord, literally shoulder to shoulder, or worship him in unison, as the New English translation puts it. These purified lips that offer service, that points forward to the harmonious glorification of Christ's church, which offers to the God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ, that uh, that worship with one voice. Uh, so Romans 15, verses 5 and 6 describes it. So, uh, so, yeah, reaching back, reaching forward, and all coming to rest here on Zephaniah 3, 9 in this prophecy from him. So that's what I see going on here. Alex, what do you think? Man, I think that's uh, exactly right. That's right on the money. You get the idea that Babel is going to be reversed, and that idea pops up again in the New Testament. Think about Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when dispersed Jews from all over the nations come to the temple in Jerusalem, and there they hear the apostles preaching the gospel in every one of their languages. 
And so just like uh, Zephaniah 3.8, I think Zephaniah 3.9 perfectly describes the resurrection of Christ and the discipling of all nations before his return in judgment upon the world. So that uh, that reversal of Babel, that's that's uh, important because that's, that's Gentiles, right? Gentiles come from Babel. Uh, Israelites come from Abraham. And Abraham was taken out of one of those Babel nations that dispersed out of Ur of the Chaldeans. So this is a really important messianic prophecy, I think, in Zephaniah chapter 3. Now, verse 10 we get something about Ethiopia again. Who are the scattered ones from Ethiopia in verse 10? So there's a similar idea that's found in Isaiah's oracles concerning Cush, which is a synonym for Ethiopia, another way of describing Ethiopia. Tribute would be brought by the Ethiopians in Isaiah 18, verse 7. Generally, in Zephaniah, it could be understood as the ends of the earth. So just as judgment went out to the ends of the earth, now grace has gone out to the ends of the earth, and Cush is kind of representative of just the farthest reaches uh, of the the then-known world. But if one were to get more specific, I think three options are available, and this is courtesy of Bailey and Barker in the uh, New American Commentary. Uh, one is that Gentiles would bring worship and sacrifice to Yahweh, and this is kind of an echo of 2 verse 11. Second option is that scattered Jews returning to Jerusalem would bring their offerings in worship of Yahweh, kind of the restoration of fortunes that's mentioned in 2 verse 7. And then the third option is that Gentiles would, uh, would bring dispersed Jews back to the land as kind of a thanksgiving offering to Yahweh, and that's something that is uh, described in Isaiah 66, verses 18 through 20, especially verse 20. Uh, so a few different options there of, again, how this kind of comes to fruition historically. Uh, what do you think, Alex? So I'm going to uh, just throw this out here. I'm wondering about this. I'm not saying for sure that this is a connection, but could these verses about the Ethiopians could it be the motive behind Luke's inclusion of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8? I mean, if I had all these Old Testament prophecies about Messiah in my mind, and I was looking for people coming out of Ethiopia, uh, this would signal to me that it's really happening. The salvation of Yahweh has finally come, because there were thousands of people becoming Christians, but Luke picks very specific conversion accounts for his story and so that thought crossed my mind maybe the ethiopian eunuch um, maybe he's part of this uh, zephaniah 310 the scattered ones even coming out from ethiopia to bring a sacrifice to yahweh and that's what he was doing he was bringing a sacrifice on behalf of queen uh was it queen candace uh yeah or the queen of ethiopia Actually, Candace, I think, was an old old queen, not in that day. But uh, anyway, the queen of Ethiopia, and he's bringing back a scroll of Isaiah. He's reading about Messiah from Isaiah 53, suffering servant. And there he gets the message of Jesus preached to him by Philip, and he is uh, baptized. And he becomes this uh, part of this new group who is going to serve Yahweh shoulder to shoulder, uh, all worshiping 
one name, one God, one Lord. Huh, that sounds familiar, right? Is it, what's that? Uh, Ephesians 4, one Lord, one God, one baptism, one yeah. faith. Well, anyway, just throwing way, that Acts, out there. Food for Acts thought. Acts 27, you're right on the money about uh, the Ethiopian eunuch was a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. It was Candace. Okay, good. Good job. All right, thank you. <laughs> the memory attic isn't too uh, dusty up there. So uh, verse 11 then. Nick, what is Yahweh's holy mountain that is mentioned here, and how is it relevant to the passage? Holy mountain uh, is typically equated with Mount Zion, which is uh, prophetically and, I guess, poetically, Jerusalem, where the Temple Mount was. So shame, disgrace, that's removed from Jerusalem. The uh, proud and their pride are also removed. Uh, All those who are self-confident, taken away, that is. So this is the fulfillment of Yahweh's call for the humble to seek him, back in 2 verse 3. Quiet trust, then, is going to characterize the people, as uh, is described in verse 17. And uh, briefly, very interesting structure here in verses 11 to verse 19. Uh, I think we've talked about uh, uh, chiasms before, where you have this, uh, this structure of A, B, B, A. Uh, you have the structure where um, the first part corresponds to the last part, and then the second part corresponds to the second to last part. And, and, it, and it could go on for quite an extensive, I mean, you can get all the way A, B, C, D, E, F. I've seen that before too. But this is just a kind of a brief one here where verse 11, you have Jerusalem shame will be removed, answering to verse 19, the second part of verse 19, where Yahweh will remove the shame. And then verses 11, the second part of verse 11 to verse 13, Yahweh will preserve a remnant, answers to 18 and 19, the first part of verse 19, will Yahweh will restore a remnant. And then kind of the heart of this chiasm is verses 14 through 17. Verses 14 through 14 and 15, Jerusalem is urged to rejoice in Yahweh's saving presence. And then, verses 16 and 17, Jerusalem is urged to take comfort in Yahweh's saving presence. So you have this this parallel structure, this chiastic structure that runs throughout these verses, which, I mean, when, when when I saw that, I was like, man... Zephaniah, this guy is a lyrical gangsta, yo. Man, this guy, <laughs> this is poetry at its finest. And, and, and that's something that I think is missed sometimes. We just kind of read right over this stuff. These guys were um, linguistic, linguistically uh, skilled. They were, uh, they were genius when it came to verse and prose and things like that. And so... Uh, you, that really pops here with that kind of chiastic structure where all this stuff answers to itself at the beginning and at the end here. And so I just wanted to point that out because I just think it's super cool. But Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, a lot of times chiasm can uh, jive well with the overall uh, theological message, too, being presented, which here is divine reversal, right? And yeah. so uh, how are you presenting this hope of divine reversal with a chiastic structure where you lead up and then reverse it. And so that's, um, I think that is pretty interesting. 
you know, in keeping. I got a sidetrack there, Alex. Okay. Talk about that holy mountain. <laughs> <laughs> so Yahweh's holy mountain. Um, in keeping with the messianic trajectory that I've been following, it's hard not to parse this verse with Hebrews chapter twelve, which tells us that the Christian has already come to Mount Zion and heavenly Jerusalem, which cannot be shaken, unlike the earthly Zion and earthly Jerusalem, which can be shaken, was shaken, and will be shaken again, according to Hebrews uh, chapter 12. And at the end of that chapter, verse 29, there's another connection where it says, our God is a consuming fire. Well, you bring that back to Zephaniah 3.8, which says the fire of Yahweh's zeal. And so this imagery mm. Uh, has, I think, deep connections between Hebrews 12 and Zephaniah 3. And having said that, and other prophets as well, because uh, Hebrews 12 quotes Haggai, and we did that on Haggai chapter 2, look in the archives for that. But having said that, I understand how the original audience would have imagined uh, nothing but the literal and physical Mount Zion. But then again, the New Testament affirms that the Messianic Messianic passages were made intentionally vague, which justifies, I think, the kind of reading that I'm putting on the text. Mm -hmm. So verses 12 through 13, Nick, uh, who is the remnant of Israel and did they really do no wrong? Because that's what it sounds like here. Historically, the remnant are those Jews who returned to Jerusalem following the exile. And uh, certainly following the exile, the people would be humble and lowly, as it's described there in, in verse 12. The emphasis on the absence of sinful behavior, iniquity, falsehood, deception, especially pertaining to the, the mouth, the lips, uh, could be poetic language for the ethical purity that people were to embody coming out of the exile. Given the rise, historically, of the various religious sects which sought to keep the law with stricter and stricter guidelines, I think the remnant sought to fulfill this. Uh, the deeper you, the, the further you get into uh, kind of that intertestamental period. Uh, however poorly their attempts were, that's uh, probably what they were trying to do. But um, well, by the time Jesus shows up, he kind of points out, you "Guys, this is this isn't what this isn't what it's all about." But um, if the text here, uh, three verses nine through twenty of Zephaniah. If, these, if this text is messianic, the remnant of spiritual Israel could include the scattered, the dispersed worshipers among the nations, uh, possibly Gentiles from among the nations, right? Because you have that reference to Cush, to Ethiopia in verse 10 we talked about. This view, then, this messianic view, may be best uh Maybe what's really in view here, and, and best, the best understanding of this, since remnant theology plays such a significant role in Paul's argument in Romans uh, chapters 9 through 11, it has a lot to say about the remnant there. So, uh, yeah, there you go. A little, little from column A, a little from column B from me there, I guess. Uh, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, just to continue what you left off on, I think Romans 9 through 11 is how I would parse these verses um, Yahweh has gathered one people, calling on one Lord, serving him shoulder to shoulder. And this is obviously the church. It's full of all nations, both Jew and Gentile. And Paul, uh, he'll say it's it's one olive tree, not two olive trees, one olive trees, but with both natural and wild olive branches grafted in together. That's the remnant. 
that olive tree is the remnant. And the unbelieving uh, Jews, the natural branches, they were cut off. They can be grafted back in, but they were cut off for their unbelief. So regarding the other part of this question, the, so that's the remnant, but did they do no wrong? Uh, it's, so I almost have to answer, does the church do no wrong, right? Does the Christian mm-hmm. do no wrong? So regarding the moral state of this remnant and their fearless state of existence, uh, you know, they, they won't fear an enemy, they'll lie down without fear. I see really only two choices. Uh, first choice is, uh, you mentioned, this could be poetic language. So from the messianic trajectory, it's poetic language for the Christian practice and the Christian ideals that go alongside with our confidence of faith and living by faith, even in the face of danger, even in the face of martyrdom. So that's choice number one. That would be a fulfillment of uh, this passage in Zephaniah. Choice number two Uh, It could be that Zephaniah is describing the more literal state of affairs after the return of Christ and judgment upon the world, where God's people have arrived at their final form of sanctification, and we've talked about sanctification before, and their inheritance of the earth. So it could be, you know, yeah, people still do wrong, we still, there's still people who lie and are deceitful, there's still fear. But will that still really be there when we've all finished our sanctification and we've inherited the earth? I don't think so. And, you know, like you said, a little from column A, column B, maybe there's a little bit of both going on, a little bit of poetic language and a little more uh, pointing towards the the progressive sanctification of the Christian and the church. Any thoughts there, Nick? I think we upholstered that verse very nicely. Yeah, we did. Those verses. <laughs> verse 15, then. Um, it talks about Yahweh taking away judgment against Jerusalem. When did that happen? As uh, one writer put it that I was reading, judgment is not the final word when it comes to Yahweh. And so here, Zephaniah holds in tension the idea of catastrophic and complete worldwide judgment. Everything will be swept away, going back to the very beginning of the book. And at the same time, you have a fresh start for his people and for humanity. And so uh, I think that's I think that weighs in here, and that's a factor to understanding verse 15. What do you think? So I think Yahweh, so again, Messianic trajectory, I think Yahweh took away judgment by bringing into the world a place of shelter from the day of wrath. That place of shelter is called belief in Jesus. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It remains on him. Uh, In other words, when Christ came, the wrath of God was already upon the whole world, Jew and Gentile. The whole world, Gentiles, uh, since Babel, and even for Judah, uh, I think since uh, even beyond Babylonian captivity, as John the Baptist says when he shows up as the messianic forerunner, he says, repent, because the axe is already laid at the root of the tree, uh, the tree of, of Jerusalem, the tree of Judah. They are already under judgment. And so like an umbrella, Christ becomes the shelter for those who wish to step out of judgment and into eternal life before the final day of the Lord. So that's uh, that's what I think about how God removed judgment. Uh, it's more like he removed 
them from the realm of judgment into a place safe from that judgment. But the judgment still remains upon all those outside of that place of shelter. Belief in the Messiah who came to save them. So, Nick, we have a time reference here. Verse 8, verse 11, verse 16, but especially verses 11 and 16. The time reference is in that day. So what time period does in that day refer to? Uh, it's the day of Yahweh that we've been talking about all throughout this book. Zephaniah has talked about it uh, many, many times. Uh, it's the day which brings judgment upon the nations, but restoration of the fortunes of Judah. Um, several, and maybe most, commentators point to the Messianic era as specifically in this context, the end of Zephaniah, as this day. Uh, so so that's what I found. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, not to be redundant, but but yeah, <laughs> Messianic. <laughs> Zephaniah 3, 8 through 20, all Messianic. So Zephaniah 3, 16 also says, uh, do not let your hands fall limp, which brings us to another connection to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 12, which says, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, referring to uh, the sanctification process, the difficulty of uh, of discipline, of morals and spiritual discipline. So in summary, I would say in that day is the time in which Christ will come to save the whole world before the final judgment. And so Christ, he does come as a victorious warrior. That theme, I think, still plays into the New Testament, into the gospel, because he defeats, he disarms the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. How? Through the cross. That's Colossians 2.15. Well, Nick, uh, what is the importance of this uh, phrase in Zephaniah 3, 5, 15, and 17, especially 15 and 17, where it says, God will be in their midst. Yeah, so when we covered verse 5, I kind of touched on this. Uh, So just to kind of reiterate, the presence of Yahweh means the presence of righteousness, despite appearances to the contrary. Um, there are three results of Yahweh's presence that are specifically named in verses 15 through 17 here in Zephaniah 3. There is the removal of fear, which uh, leaves room for joy, uh, verses 14 and 15. There's salvation, which likewise promotes joy in Yahweh here in verse uh, 17. And then there's also the restoration of the theocracy, since it is Yahweh who is the king of Israel that is in their midst. Uh, And he's uh, styled king of Israel earlier in chapter 3. So uh, that that seems to be the the importance here. Removal of fear, uh, giving way to joy, salvation, that promotes joy as well. And then the restoration of the theocracy, uh, as Yahweh being king of Israel. Uh, That's what I see here. What do you think, Alex? Uh, This seems to me like an easy connection back to Jesus as well. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, which is uh, fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14. uh, Joseph is told by an angel that the uh, child uh, that Mary is, is now pregnant with will be named Jesus and that and Matthew tells us as a commentary that this also means he was Emmanuel meaning God with us so God in their midst God with us God as their king um, 
you know, we we know that God was with Israel um, through his glory cloud, through his uh, Shekinah presence. Uh, he was, you know, on the on the mountain atop of um, of uh, Mount Horeb, right, Mount Sinai. He was in his glory in the tabernacle, and then he was in his glory in the temple. But Jesus, he comes, and he is the tabernacle and the temple of God in human flesh. And this makes way for the Christian to become also a part of that tabernacle. The body of Christ is what the church is called. And so uh, that makes us a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit, which makes all uh, Christian humans walking mobile tabernacles, which can then fill the entire world with sacred space and the presence of God. And so when we talk about the presence, uh, I think it brings in that Old Testament imagery of the glory of God dwelling on his place that he said he would dwell. And, uh, And I think we'll have some more to say about that concerning the second temple as well how that was that was absent from the second temple but uh verse 18 who are the grieving ones and when does yahweh gather them together so these are the the jews who've been exiled and during the exile they did not have access to the temple at jerusalem they could not celebrate the various festivals which were prescribed in the law and so they grieved over that uh, deprivation. Uh, they may also be grieving over their sins and um, uh, the judgment that has come upon them. And so they mourn, uh, they are sorrowful, and this grieving, this sorrow, is no doubt akin to the psalmist's grief and sorrow when he writes, Psalm 137, verse 1, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Uh, so, uh, that's what I see here going on in verse 18. What do you think, Alex? It seems the people who desire the divine presence, uh, those solemn assemblies, as the Dead Sea Scroll uh, puts it, uh, who want to draw near to Yahweh, unlike those who were judged in uh, chapter 1 and 2 because they did not seek him, even while they had his presence at the temple, those seekers who do now want to seek him Yahweh says, uh, you will be found. You will be found by me. Interesting note, when I went back, um, I did remember from Haggai chapter 2 that we noted, yeah, Yahweh's glory rested on Mount Sinai, Exodus 24, filled the tabernacle, Exodus 40, filled Solomon's temple, 1 Kings 8, but never to my knowledge in the Bible or second temple literature does the glory of Yahweh fill that second temple, the one rebuilt and completed in um, Ezra's time. So even though they had another temple and they could celebrate the festivals, was Yahweh's presence with them ever really the same? I think not. Not until Yahweh himself tabernacles in human flesh through Jesus Christ, which is John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, That word for dwelt is tabernacled, tabernacled among us. Well, Nick, verses uh, 19 and 20, wrapping up the book here of Zephaniah, what time period, time period again, is the phrase at that time 
when Jerusalem would be praised and renowned worldwide? I think the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy is the post-exilic return to the land. In fact, the New Revised Standard translates it, I will bring you home. Um, so a, a remnant of the Jewish people, they, they did return to the land after the 70 years of Babylonian captivity, something that was promised specifically by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14, and uh, especially verse 10, that has the time element, and verse 14 of Jeremiah 29 has the phrase, I will restore your fortunes. That's a something that is echoed here in Zephaniah. And so that time would be 536 B.C. and beyond when Cyrus sends, uh, Cyrus sends the first wave back to the land, and then guys like Ezra and Nehemiah, they, they have their uh, waves that come back with them too later on. But uh, in this way, Yahweh is uh, vindicating his people to some degree. They are still the people of the great God of heaven and earth. And, um, yeah, I, that's, that's what I see here as, as far as the immediate fulfillment of this at the time when uh, they're going to come back and, uh, to the land. So uh, that's what I see. What do you think? Well, I'll start by saying I, I do agree that there is some fulfillment to a certain degree by, by what you mentioned, especially when you go back and read Jeremiah um, 29, 10 through 14, as you noted. So that that is important. I don't want to ignore that. But I will opt for another explanation of these last few verses in Zephaniah based on a few missing items when we look at 319 and 320. So first, Israel's oppressors were not all dealt with since they continued to have oppressors under the thumb of Medo-Persia and then Greece and then Rome. And uh, th- those were no cakewalks. And sure, Babylon, yeah, Babylon got swept up by the Medes. But that still seems to miss the point of not living in fear of one's enemies as you switch from one world empire to another under the thumb of each one. So that's the first thing. Second, I don't remember any post-exilic writers mentioning anything about saving the lame or gathering the outcast when Jews returned to Jerusalem. However, I do remember that happening in the Gospels because Jesus did all of those things. He did restore the lame. He did rescue the outcasts, which makes this verse again likely messianic. And so lastly, the third reason is that uh, Jerusalem, though it was re-inhabited, it doesn't seem to be renowned or praised by all the nations. And if all that happened in 536 BC, then man, it must have lasted a whole like two minutes and then forgot to be recorded. <laughs> so um, the Jewish remnant returned after 70 years of captivity. But my thought is, did the Jews themselves see that return as a fulfillment of the promised restoration, as the gathering, as the worldwide praise and renown that they were promised. And I think not, especially since it didn't include the northern tribes that had been dispersed as well. Uh, And so I'll let the New Testament be the final authority on the restoration question, because there is something here uh, still still missing. So Acts chapter 1 verse 6, the apostles ask Jesus, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel. Uh, That's before the day of Pentecost, right? And he says, it's not not for you to know about all that. You just wait here for this Holy Spirit. So after the day of Pentecost, they have the Spirit. They're preaching the gospel. 
Acts chapter 3, verse 21, Peter says uh, regarding Jesus, heaven must receive him, receive Christ, until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. So it seems like both before Pentecost and after Pentecost, the apostles expected a still future restoration foretold by the prophets, which I think happens at the return of Christ when he comes to gather all who have pledged allegiance to his kingdom, both Jew and Gentile, his one body, his one kingdom that he is one Lord over. So that's that's my thought on restoration and, and you know where we're at right now in the timeline of that and how that fits into messianic prophecy. Any final thoughts there, Nick? Uh, yeah, I did have one thing that I wanted to mention about um, uh, social justice, right? Because that's that's kind of the hot button topic these days. And, sure. Yeah. Um, and I, I came across this quote uh, from. Uh, I mentioned Bailey and Barker, their commentary on uh, uh, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah in the New American Commentary. And and they write, every generation faces this issue. How can we reform our social order? How can our nation become a better people? Zephaniah implies an answer. True society arises from committed obedience, not rebellion, and from personal holiness, not defilement. Social reformation arises from a return to God and to individual moral integrity. To seek to reform society in the hope that this will produce high standards and good people is to put the cart before the horse. It is converted and godly individuals that make good society. That's good stuff. We, yeah, I know it. We, we, I, when, when we talked earlier in the in the podcast, I mentioned about um, how any effort at justice, social justice, economic justice, fill in the blank justice, it has to begin with God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh. Uh, disconnected from that, uh, you're always going to be playing one down. And in fact, what usually happens is you end up with a, a distorted idea of justice. And I think that's what you're seeing uh, right now. With a lot of the uh, the riots, uh, it's you're going. Folks are going about this the, the wrong way. Uh, I heard someone talk about how uh, back during the uh, civil rights movements in the '60s, when uh, Martin Luther King Jr. organized uh, his march, they anticipated that the the police would do what what they did, and that was uh, you know sick the dogs. Uh, uh, beat the people and open up the fire hoses and all that stuff. But he said, let them do it. And it was a, it was a peaceful thing on their part because they wanted those images to be seen. And, and people did see that. It had the intended effect. Whereas now, the, the call seems to be destroy everything. Burn the whole thing to the ground. The whole system is uh, systemically racist and so we have to burn the whole thing down. And it's it's... It's the wrong way of going about this. Um, and so uh, as New Testament Christians, right? And and that's why I appreciated all of this conversation with uh, the connections that you made to uh, viewing Zephaniah through the lens of Messiah. That's what is needed today is is the view of justice through the lens of Messiah, uh, who, who did come, 
uh, as the king of peace, and he did come to do justice and, and to fulfill these, these messianic prophecies about him. Uh, but what we're seeing now is, is a, a distortion of, of justice. It is not true justice. It is, uh, it's not even based on the Bible. It's based on uh, critical race theory, based on the Frankfurt School, and, uh, and that's ultimately rooted in cultural Marxism, which is rooted in true Marxism. So uh, it, I don't know. We just, I read Zephaniah and you know all this talk about justice. It, it, it's ultimately rooted in Yahweh is just. And in order for us to be a just people, Yahweh must be in our midst. So that's what I have to say about that. <laughs> yeah. What about you? Any final thoughts? Well, I, I, I think that was well said. And um, I just try to keep it simple. You know, Jesus said to... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, and if you do that, it, it fulfills everything else. It does everything else. And so I think uh, the best thing we can do right now as Christians is to keep being Christians, right? Uh, what we do before times of crisis should be the same things that we do during times of crisis. Steady at the helm. You know, we have a direction. We have a mission. It's the discipling of all nations. It's the spreading of the gospel. Stay focused on that. And that starts first in the home with your own family, with your own children, being a godly spouse, a godly parent. And that's your job. And that's what you do. You work within your sphere of influence to uh, make the uh, world holy space, sacred for God's presence. And anything else is a distraction. It's a distraction. It's not going to accomplish that goal. The goal, the means to accomplish the goal has already been laid out. It's the gospel. It's the preaching and teaching of the gospel. It's loving God and your neighbor as yourself. So that's how I try to just bring it back to the simple, pure message of the gospel. We already know what's right to do. Most Christians are already doing the right thing. Just keep doing that, even when the world around you is on fire. So (laughs) that's my thought. Well, that brings us, Nick. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to do it for Zephaniah 3. And that brings us uh, not only to a conclusion of the book, but to uh, my favorite part of the show, The Featured Creature. Featured Creature. And this week's Featured Creature is the Philistine god Dagon, or uh, sometimes pronounced Dagon. So go ahead, Nick. Uh, Tell us about Dagon. Yeah, Dagon is uh, an ancient deity whose history has been traced back to the third millennium BC. So this is a, like I said, an ancient deity. This guy goes back way far. Uh, is a common deity throughout Mesopotamia, though especially Western Mesopotamia. And he communicated. This deity communicated via a variety of means: dreams, possessions, verbal utterance. And he would communicate concerning a range of topics, like military, fertility, divine guidance, even funeral preparations. Dagon's uh, cultic ritual migrated westward so that he became the national deity of the Philistines, as is recorded in the Bible. Judges 16, verse 23, Now the Lord of the Philistines, the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god. And then they say, our god, etc. The center for Dagon worship was the house of Dagon. It was located in Ashdod, according to uh, 1 Samuel 5, verses 1 and 2. That's where the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant after they defeat Israel in battle. 
Dagon worship continued into the intertestamental period, into the Maccabean period. Uh, since at Azotus, which is another name for Ashdod, the temple Beth Dagon, which is House of Dagon, is burned to the ground by Jonathan the high priest, and that's recorded in 1 Maccabees 10, verses 83 and 84. Now, concerning Dagon's nature, precision actually eludes scholars, which is very interesting considering how far back his history goes. The popular notion is that Dagon was a fish god, the argument being made that the Hebrew words Dagon and fish are similar. The Hebrew word for fish, Alex, your Hebrew is better than mine, dag, right? Um, Others point to similarity between the Hebrew terms Dagon and grain, the Hebrew word for grain being Dagan. Still others have identified Dagon as a storm god via the Arabic. However, the true origin and nature of Dagon is lost to antiquity. Creepy. Hmm. <laughs> um, one pop culture reference about Dagon, horror author H.P. Lovecraft wrote a short story entitled Dagon. It was published in 1919, 100 years ago. In the story, a frenzied man is recounting how after being lost at sea, he happened upon an island where he encountered the deity Dagon, this massive uh, creature that came out of the ocean. It's an experience which drives the author insane, and he's writing from an upper story in a particular building. Dagon has followed him back to the mainland, shows up outside his apartment door, and that produces a full mental break. It causes the author to jump out of his window and kill himself. H.P. Lovecraft, ladies and gentlemen. So um, that's a bit about Dagon, what I found. Alex, uh, add a bit to the discussion here. What did you find? Yeah, you mentioned the uh, three major incidents involving Dagon in the Bible. First, there was the... uh, one in the days of Judges where the Philistines captured and blinded Samson, and then he's brought into Dagon's temple for entertainment, which ends with Samson bringing the house down, uh, literally. And second, the Philistines, when they capture the Ark of the Covenant and place it in their temple to Dagon as a trophy, uh, the statue of Dagon keeps getting mysteriously injured, resulting in a headless and handless Dagon lying on the ground of his own temple. And third, after King Saul is killed in battle by the Philistines, they hang Saul's armor and his head in Dagon's temple. Seriously, can't these people think of any better decorations? Come on. (laughs) If you include the Apocrypha, which you mentioned Jonathan the high priest, 1 Maccabees records Dagon's temple being burned down by uh, Jonathan Afus in the 2nd century B.C., Dagon is noted in some Ugaritic texts as the father of Baal, ran into Baal in the book of Zephaniah. Now that's strange because Baal in Ugaritic texts still calls El, who's the most high god of the Canaanite pantheon, Baal still calls El his father. So is Dagon his father or is El his father? There you go. Ancient divine daddy issues right there in Ugarit. Ancient Near Eastern Mori show or something. <laughs> That's right. Dagon, you are not the father. <laughs> That's right. So whatever Dagon was, right? Nobody knows. Fish god, grain god. I kind of like the grain god theory, but whatever. Death god. Um, we don't know. It's pretty clear, though, that the Israelites uh, really hated him. 
and really hated the Philistines and uh, the uh, headless, handless deity of Dagon was no match for Yahweh. And uh, Dagon was way too obsessed with putting decapitated heads on his mantle. So Hmm. there you go. Lost, though, to the ravages of time and probably for good reason. So that's our featured creature, Dagon. Even the name Dagon, right? Yeah. Or Dagon. 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 That's right. So that is our featured creature. Well, I don't think we have anything else for today, Nick. Any uh, last words for the audience? Uh, yeah, if you go into uh, Apple Podcast uh, on your particular iDevice, search Swordplay, you'll find the podcast there. And you can uh, download the episodes to your particular iDevice, or you can go into the Google Play Music Store and search Swordplay. You'll find it there as well for all you uh, non-Apple product-using folks. And, uh, yeah, download them, take them with you. All the archives are there. Leave a review. That'll help us boost the podcast in those respective podcast locations. Share it on social media as well. Help us get the word out about the podcast. Now, uh, you may have a question out there, oh, diligent listener. Alex, where can they send that question to? Please send it to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Well, thanks for sticking with us through the book of Zephaniah. We hope it uh, was edifying and somewhat enjoyable. And we will see you next time on another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.